Welcome to episode 15 here on Captives of Truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Olivares, and welcome back to another episode here. I hope that you're all doing well and uh, thanking you always for your prayers and support uh, for this podcast to continue through the grace of the Lord. Um, today, I've decided to do another question and answers session. The reason for that is because um, I have to apologize that I don't know how to look at questions or um, uh, you know comments on Instagram apparently <laughs> and um, I realized that there were so many questions that came in um, that I felt that um, would be so hard and difficult to uh, all have them in one episode if you want them all answered in one episode it's really going to take us three hours four hours um, but for your sake <laughs> and your sanity I've decided to split it up and so today I'm going to answer more of your questions. And again, I'm so thrilled and so thankful. Um, and I appreciate your responses and your willingness to um, communicate with me and to just see my take on whatever you are curious about um, pertaining to scripture or certain scenarios of believers' lives. And so today we're going to do that and uh we are going to jump from a few subjects um, from what's happening currently in our world today uh, to specific scenarios in a person's life and also um, in reference to uh, or in regards to um, certain passages in the scripture that may um, bring confusion to some people. So um, I'll get us started um, and uh, I hope that these answers that I'll provide you will be uh, edifying and um elaborate enough to bring clarity uh, before you. Of course, um, you can still feel free to ask any questions uh, via uh, Facebook or Instagram at Captives of Truth or email me at uh, Captives of Truth um, or sorry, info at Captives of org. So um, you can do that. And so we get started with this first question, a question that I would say many of us are pondering upon. It might not be the most important question currently, but definitely something that may have crossed our mind as believers um, to what's happening right now between Israel and Palestine um, with the war that's happening between them and the constant um, horrors and uh, killings and bombings and um, disaster that we see uh, between these two nations or these two groups of people. Um, and so the question was, what are my thoughts on the war that is going on between Palestinians and Israeli um, or the Israelites? Um, well, to be honest with you, um, my stance on it is um, just as what Scripture says is to keep the people of the Lord in prayer. Now, obviously, uh, we are not going to take this um, unequally to the point where we are... Um, neglecting the fact that there are also Palestinians that are harmed uh, by what's going on. Surely uh, the most um, humanly th way of thinking about it is that both sides are under attack, both sides are um, hurt, are uh, obviously in danger, and so we are not to neglect one side over the other. Um, but we are to equally look at the situation, look at it fairly at what's happening, we know for a fact that Israel and the Palestinians have been at war ever since biblical times and that this has been an ongoing war ever since. Um, and 
some believers will link this back to Isaac and Ishmael um, and the obvious animosity that rises between the two, um, especially after Hagar and Ishmael depart from Abraham and Sarah. And so we know that according to Genesis 16, that God um, had called out what Ishmael would be. Um, and obviously Arabs would consider, or which, uh, sorry, Muslims would consider in the Quran that Ishmael is the promised child, um, which we know that Ishmael and his descendants would eventually lead toward, toward the Arabs. Um, and um, I want us to consider that not all Arabs are Muslims and not all Muslims are Arabs. Um, and, um, but we, we consider that Ishmael's descendants would lead um, or Ishmael's seed would lead um, toward the Arab nations. And so um, in Genesis, Genesis 16, it says when the, when the Lord was speaking to um, Hagar that she was pregnant and she will bear a son. His name is Ishmael. Um, in verse 11, um, because the Lord has listened to your affliction, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So you realize that Ishmael is obviously going to have um, um, animosity, really. He's going to have animosity with his neighboring friends, his neighboring uh, nations, and it's just going to spread from there. And then after the birth of Isaac, uh, we get Sarah wanting to, um, to banish or to uh, cause Hagar and Ishmael to depart from them. And Hagar, again, spoken uh, to in verse 8 of chapter 21. Um, and, and it says there, And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. So you see the animosity already from that particular passage. Um, and then when we skip further, uh, we see here in verse 17, And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy drink. So, um, you realize that Ishmael is also going to be blessed with a great nation, although not as great as Isaac's seed or the promise given to the promised child Isaac. Uh, but he still yet will be given a nation or a, uh, a great blessing from the Lord uh, that uh, was promised. And so the consideration here is that Ishmael, his nature in chapter 16, is one who is a wild who will create animosity, who will be at in, on, in animosity with his neighbors, his, his own loved ones. And um, this is, a, this is a, a person that will eventually have a seed that will lead into a nation, a great nation. Um, and so we speculate this to be the Arab nations uh, that come out of Ishmael's um, loins. And um, this is in contrast with Isaac in, in verse 1 of Genesis 21, when Isaac is born. And so we see an obvious um, scenario of animosity that has risen and possibly has driven 
this war between the Arabs and the Jews for quite some time now. However, this ancient animosity that we see in Scripture does not completely explain the present war that's happening between the Isra uh, the Israel Israelites and the Palestinians. So we can't just take what happened in Genesis uh, to explain the present day scenario. Although we see that that's really where the source of all of this came from, it's still a bit obscure to um, to just explain it with just that explanation. Um, but we know for a fact that the Jews and the Arabs have been in war over se over several issues, uh, such as religion, right? They killed each other over belief system, um, and especially land. I mean, you read the Old Testament, you see um, the Palestinians warring with the, with the people of God over land. Um, and especially as of late in, in 1947 all the way to 1949, this is what they call uh, Israel's war for independence. Um, in 1948, when they were declared a nation, right, the United Nations gave land to uh, the Jews to take and they declared themselves to be an independent state in 1948. And we know that there was a war that uh, took place because there was an uproar among the Arab nations. And... As we take that into account, we can see that the present-day war that's going on between Hamas uh, or the Palestinians over against the Israelis, we see for a fact that that's probably driven from what happened in 1948. But I'm not in doubt that all of this still leads back to what happened, uh, the animosity with Ishmael and Isaac. But I'm just bringing in a lot more context to what we know um, for our present situation between the, uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians. So as we take that into account, this is, the still, this is still the same issue that we see today, that the, the Arabs um, or Hamas is in war with, with or in animosity with uh, Israel because of the land, right? And so that's what's still happening and the war is on the basis of who deserves to keep the land, who claim the land. Obviously, the Jews claim that this is the land of their um, their fathers. And the Arabs also claim that this is our land that they've had for uh, before um, the Jews ever came. So um, this is the ongoing war that we see. It's very repetitive throughout history. But um, if you were to ask me what Scripture says, scripturally, Israel is deserving to be its own nation. I mean, this is God's people. Um, I think all Christians should support Israel, should defend Israel, should pray for Israel, uh, because Israel deserves to be its own nation, and it, they deserve to have their own land. It's not even a big piece of land in comparison to the Arab nations, but yet everyone wants to take over their land. Um, and if in just regards to the war that's going on with them, quite frankly, there will never be peace between these two groups, not until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, really. Um, but this is something that should not surprise us. This is something we've seen in history, and this is something that will continue until the Lord's return. So um, this is an ongoing war that, um, unfortunately, we will never see peace I know that there are so many people that are fighting for peace. Depending on your end time views, there will be some Christians that are fighting for uh, peace between the Arabs and the Jews, uh, or Israel and the Palestinians, if you want to be more technical. Um, and they're fighting for that. 
and um, they're trying to reign that peace. Really, there's not going to be peace until the Lord returns. Um, and so that's that's what I would. See. That's how I look at the current situation. And even now, until until today, the Jews, majority of them, do not even recognize Jesus as Messiah. Right? The great divide there of Muslims, Judaizers, um, and Christians, Catholics, all all mixed up there. And um, until now, they don't recognize Jesus as their Messiah. Um, and only at the return of Jesus will they truly experience salvation uh, from their enemies. Only at that point is when they will recognize Jesus as their Messiah, um, whom they really rejected from, from, uh, from the beginning. So for now, um, how we must view it as Christians is, like I mentioned, we must pray for Israel, support Israel. God blesses the people who bless Israel, who pray for Israel. That's God's people. Just like in Psalm 122, verse 6, uh, Scripture says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So it would be our duty to pray for Israel's peace, um, that they would also come into recognition and come to their senses that Jesus is their Messiah. But not only for the Israelis, but I would say that we should pray also for those who persecute God's people, uh, which would be the um, Hamas or the Palestinians, and that we pray for them to come to their senses and uh, come to recognize the one and only true God. Because not until they recognize that, there's always going to be curse on them, there's always going to be plague on them. And... Uh, Israel will never be destroyed because that's God's people. And um, for those who persecute God's people, I think that's a fearful thing. I think that's a scary situation to be in, especially when you're going up against God's people. Um, we should really be praying for them to come to their senses, not to persecute God's people and recognize Jesus as the one and only true God. So that's my take on the war that's going uh, on between Israel and the Palestinians. Um, I don't think it's anything new or uncommon what I answered with this, um, but yet we still have to um, put that into perspective, especially um, of what Scripture has already told us and what Scripture tells us is going to happen in the future. So um, let's keep praying for them. Let's keep supporting Israel. And um, let's not be mistaken with what's happening today. And, um, and, and, and follow the bandwagon. I see that it's easy to follow the media. And the media um, right now is making Israel look like they are the bad people and that Israel is the one that's oppressing the Palestinians. Um, if you were just to listen to um, the Jewish perspective of what's happening, they would say the same thing, that the media isn't covering what Hamas is doing to the Jews. So I would say that it's quite equal uh, and that um, there would not be any war if there was no reasoning behind it. So um, obviously we are to pray for God's people and that whoever is doing the unjust thing, that God would correct them and that whoever is in the wrong, God would correct them. So that's the most important part. We pray for both sides, um, that they all come to their senses. But uh, um, as far as that, we really will not see that peace until the Lord comes back. And so um, I hope that makes sense and it's clear. Um, second question that has come is, 
Um, can you explain 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 9, in the English Standard Version, the harmful spirit from the Lord? Now, um, this specific phrase is not just seen in chapter 19, verse 9. Uh, there's actually several accounts with this specific phrase prior to chapter 19. And it's actually seen in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel in the 14th verse uh, when it says, The Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And even in 1 Samuel 18 verse 10, uh, the harmful spirit rushed Saul. Um, so I know this raises a lot of questions because especially when it says that there's an evil spirit or in the ESV harmful spirit that comes from the Lord, I know there's a lot of questions and confusion with that because many take it as, uh, I thought that there's nothing evil that comes from God. I thought that God it doesn't tempt man, but why is this specific passage saying to us that God... Um, sent down an evil spirit uh, towards Saul. Now, it's important for us to consider that God is sovereign over all created things, okay? So God has the power to do whatever he desires to do. But don't presume immediately that God is the reason behind the evil or God is the one who created um, such evil to be placed upon Saul to where we can view it as God is the one who tempts men. Now, when the text states that it was from the Lord, uh, when the harmful spirit from the Lord, when it, when it says from the Lord, really what that means is it was permitted by God for the evil spirit to harass Saul. So look at it this way. It's, it's to be perceived as God restraining his hand and allowing the evil spirit to harass Saul because we know evil spirits exist. We know they are around and so for it to be from the Lord, it's to be interpreted that God allowed that to happen. God permitted it to happen. And God, we could even say, designated that spirit to harm Saul, to harass Saul. So God gave the permission. God gave the order um, because through his sovereign choice, he has control over all created things. And now I know even with that being said, it still leaves things questionable to why would God do that, right? I mean, God is good, so then why would he send? Why would he permit evil spirits to harass Saul? Um, it is to be recognized that all things, uh, since they are under God's control, um, this is evidence that when God permitted this evil spirit to harass Saul, that this is to be considered judgment from God. Now, if you think about it, this is no different than what we read in Romans 1, where it says that God gave them up to a debased mind, those who, were, uh, who served the creature rather than the creator, those who lived in ungodliness and unrighteousness. They are under God's wrath, and God gave them up. I think it says there twice, two or three times mentioned there that God gives them up, if I'm not mistaken. So I think that's the same thing that's happening here. And the giving up there really means that God's hand is restrained from this particular individual to an extent where he permits these evil spirits to just take over and harass um, these people. Um, and that, that is very deep 
And it's very important that we study how God's sovereignty works when it comes to permitting certain occasions to happen or certain instances to take place. So when when in so in First Samuel in sixteenth chapter, eighteenth chapter, and then the nineteenth chapter, when we see a consistent harassment from this evil spirit that is sent of the Lord, when God permits that to happen, that is God's judgment upon someone. And the judgment is on Saul because of Saul's disobedience that we see. Um, when God commands him to do a specific thing, we see Saul doing the exact opposite, which he disobeys God. And therefore, what you have as a result of that is God's judgment. So this is no different than when God sent the death angel upon the children of Egypt, where they had to, when the, uh, the people of God had to uh, put the blood on their doorposts and the death angel would come and, uh, um, and pass over those who have the blood on their doorposts. So God really has the control to permit things to happen. And um, if you're still questioning why, it really is to bring his glory out of it, to reveal his power and to reveal his glory. Uh, from it. And and if you just read the context of what happens with Saul during this time, um, really, uh, we must consider that God used the evil spirit to harass Saul um, in this situation to introduce David into Saul's life, which we know David would be the very called king of God, or sorry, the king of Israel, the king uh, the king that God would appoint and David would be introduced uh, as we know in the context they're looking for someone who would, pr who would play the lyre and um, David is the one who plays the lyre or the harp um, as many of us consider it um, and as soon as he starts playing the evil spirit would depart from Saul so really God used this situation for David to come into the, the, the situation and glorify God uh, based upon the godliness of David, and um, and and God just used that uh, for His purpose. So really, why God allows things to happen is to glorify Himself in these situations. This is no different than what we see in the life of Job, when Job um, was harassed by Satan and all those plagues that came by. God permitted Satan to have his way on Job to test him exempting touching his life, right? So um, you saw what happened to Job, his family, his livestock, everything gone. Um, and then, but there's a permission that takes place there, um, which God permitted. So that's no, no different. And also Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, remember when he says that he was, he received a thorn of the flesh. Um, and then in verse seven, Paul says that to keep him from being overly boastful or conceited uh, because of the surpassing greatness of the knowledge that he receives from the revelations. Uh, the scripture says a thorn of the flesh was given to him on purpose. Um, a messenger of Satan to harass me was sent to keep him from becoming conceited. So God's way of keeping Paul in line was to try him, to test him, to challenge him. And so God permitted a messenger of Satan to cause Paul to um, be a thorned in the flesh. And really, some consider that to, to be boastful or prideful um, upon what he saw in his revelation. So um, there are instances that God allows these things to happen 
through his sovereignty so that his glory would be seen in that situation. So really, we should not question why God does his uh, certain things because he has the um, power to do whatever he would like. That's what sovereignty really is. He can choose to do what he wants. And uh, we should just consider those historical accounts and those descriptions of, of, of these things to be examples uh, that God can permit evil spirits uh, to do what he demands uh, to result in revealing his glorious power. So really, when God permits things to happen, it's to reveal his power. Um, but in conclusion to my answer toward this question, we're not to presume in any way that God himself is the one behind tempting man, meaning that God is the one that sprung forth evil into this man's life. Um, because in James 1.13, it says, let no one say that when he is tempted, he is tempted by God, uh, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So that's what James says. Um, so it is really clear for us to acknowledge that these occasions are examples of what happens when God sovereignly restrains his hand to a certain extent over one's life. So it's the evil spirits behind it, but God permits those to happen uh, for a specific purpose. So um, I hope that answers that. And I know there are still questions in that that raise up to the point where um, it'll eventually go down to the beginning where people will ask, where did evil begin? Where did evil start? If God was the one from the start, then where did evil come from, right? So uh, those things are more deeper questions that I find uh, we can dive into um, God willing in the next um, in, in, in next time whenever we get across it. But just for the sake of answering this question, I hope that makes sense um, in regards to that specific passage you asked there. So um, we are just to consider that God permitted it for his glory. All right. Now, question number three, what is considered a child? What is considered a child um, under the age of 18 or anyone who is unmarried? Now, this is a good, uh, a very good question um, because especially when it comes to family situations, family issues, uh, especially when the kids start um, getting older in age, uh, there might be some issues and misinterpretations of what an adult is or what a child is. Now, in Scripture, whenever children are brought to the attention, whenever children are brought uh, up in the Bible— children are considered to be those who are still living with their parents at home and who have not yet started their own independent adult life, okay? So these are people, individuals, who are still under the dependence of their parents. So they are still dependent to toward their parents uh, for shelter, for food, uh, for clothing, for everything else. Um, and they have not necessarily started their adult independent life where they've moved out, got married, um, have their own kids and whatnot. So um, although there are many places like Canada, North America, when a person turns 18, they're considered to be an adult. That's the beginning of their adulthood. Or even with the Jews, uh, that's why they have the bar mitzvahs um, at the age of 12, that's when they can take on responsibilities and um, 
become more responsible. Uh, depending on the culture and depending where you live, really there's um, subjectivity of what an adult is or what is considered an adult. Now, with that being in mind, um, adulthood begins at that age because they are now capable to act and live uh, responsible for themselves. However, um, if we are just going to go by the contextual usage of the term child or children in Scripture, this refers to individuals who are still in who are still dependent uh, toward their parents. So, um, one can be 18 years of age yet still be considered a child if they are dependent on their parents. So we have that a lot where there's 18-year-olds, even older than that, um, 25, 30 years old, living in the home, but they're still dependent on their parents. Um, biblically, if you're still under dependence for your parents, then you are still considered a child because you are under the authority of your father or your parents because the father is the head of the home, and so therefore you are still considered that child, um, no matter how the scenario plays out. Uh, but what if the child is taking care of the parents? Well, that's a different scenario. I'm just speaking of people who are dependent on their parents, um, while the parents still have the capacity to lead their homes, make sure their homes are in order, then yes, the child must submit, or the individual must submit as a child, um, because the, that's what the scripture says. Uh, the Bible tells us that um, children obey your parents, honor your parents in every way in the Lord. So if you're under the dependence of your parents, then you should still obey that by honoring your parents, submitting to your parents, being fed by the authority of your father and your mother. You are still considered to be one who must obey in every way possible in the Lord whether by doing chores, whether by decision-making, uh, whatever it might be. Remember, I always say this, that if you're under your parents' house, you don't have the right to dictate how your parents should run the house. Um, unless, of course, this is um, an unruly transgression that uh, the parents are committing. But if you guys are all in the Lord, you have no right to dictate how the parents should run the house if you're dependent on them. It's, it doesn't work that way. Um, if you want to live your own life, if you want to be uh, independent and free, then you should have your own family, have your own house, live on your own. But if you're still in that home, you shouldn't act like one who is equal to your parents. Um, you should be one with respect and dignity. Actually, in the Old Testament, a child that brings disgrace to their home and dishonors their family, they're really going to be punished. So, um, I wouldn't take that lightly. Um, a child is considered to be one who's still dependent to their parents, someone who still lives at home. Um, and um, you you need to partake as a child of that house and contribute to the best of your abilities um, in that way. So I'm not saying, though, that those who have begun their independent adult life are exempted. So those people who've moved out, that they are exempted from honoring their parents and obeying their parents. I'm not saying that. But just for the sake of this question, what is considered a child, I'm just making that a point that uh, uh, the people who are living in their homes with their parents, they should fall under that category as still children. Um, 
Now, although we must not neglect the fact that God will still hold them accountable for their age and responsibilities, uh, that they are capable of fulfilling. So I know they're 18. They might be even older than that. We still must not neglect that they are still technical adults. They're adults, right? They're just living under the home. And in the order of God, they're still considered a child under the authority of their parents. But we are still not going to neglect the fact that they are practically adults and that God will still hold them accountable for the responsibilities that they can capably do um, and fulfill as aged adults. So technically, God still holds them accountable for their age and their maturity. And also, they, He holds them accountable for being submissive to the parents that they are dependent toward. So I hope that makes sense. Um, at the same time, if you're a person that lives under your parents' house, you're not supposed to act like a child forever, right? You are obviously a grown person. You are to be, you act in responsibility as an adult as you age. Um, and if they are under their parents' roof, they still fall under the authority of their father in the Lord as a child. So I hope that answers that question. Uh, what is considered a child? Someone who is dependent on their parents. You still fall under the submission and authority of the head of the home, which is the father. But I'm not taking away the fact that you are aged 18 or over. You're still technically an adult. So God is still going to hold you accountable to be responsible. And I think that's even much more of a, a responsibility because when you're aged, you're 18 and over and you live under your home, a uh, parent's house, you now become a more responsible child, right? You're an adult, at the same time a child who is responsible to obey two things, your responsibilities as an adult and also your submissiveness as a child. So uh, please consider that. Um, and I know that um, in different cultures, many people view it differently. I know with the more Asian cultures, Middle Eastern cultures, this is very sacred that um, children honor their parents with such, um, with such dignity and they hold on to that integrity of, of, of being obedient to the parents. Whereas in the North American culture, uh, there's a lot of dispute between the children and the parents and there's more sort of a toleration to uh, fight back against their parents, which is not a good testimony to be frank with you um, there has to be some sort of scriptural basis where everyone is in line and um, yeah I, I think this is very helpful for families who might have this issue where children are confused of what their responsibilities are I think this will help them uh, better uh, understand that so question number four question number four is really tied with question five and six and question four is, is it a sin to be in a relationship with an unbeliever? Good question. Now, this is common um, with everything that's happening now, especially with this, with this postmodern era, everything goes now. Um, even Christians um, find it okay to date um, unbelievers. And let me first say that there has been such a change with how we view relationships because in the bible times re, uh, really there was no dating there was none of that we don't see anyone dating or testing out um, testing out the waters 
There's no dating apps either. Um, quite frankly, when we see people in relationship, they're often brought into marriage um, right away. So um, dating is, you could say, a new thing that's been um, adopted over time. And in no way am I saying that dating is wrong what, because you still need to know your partner. You still need to get to know them and whatnot. You don't want to marry someone that you don't know. Um, but dating should lead the Christian sh to marriage, right? But with this question, is it, a, is it a sin to be in a relationship with an unbeliever? Now, let me assume two things. Let me assume that you're asking on behalf of one who is dating. And let me assume that you're also asking for those who are in marriage with an unbeliever, okay? Those are two different things. Um, now, a relationship that involves an unbeliever, let me say it is an unwise thing. Whenever you are in a binding relationship with an unbeliever, it is an unwise thing. It is not helpful. And I would say it is immature. It is an immature move on the believer's part. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14, Paul says that we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He is saying that we should not be bound or share anything in common in the sense of um, uh, devotion, commitment with an unbeliever. Something serious like that. Uh, Paul is not saying that we should avoid all unbelievers. That's absolutely wrong. But rather, Paul is saying Christians must not enter into binding or partnering agreements with non-Christians. You get that? And uh, that could be in relation to marriage, dating. Um, if you're dating, you're really binding yourself and partnering yourself with mutual agreements with a non-Christian. Or marriage, you're bound by your agreements, covenants, and the legal law. Um which binds you in marriage. Um, here's my question. What is an unbeliever? What is an unbeliever? Our definition of an unbeliever can be simplified as one who does not believe in Christ, right? That's an unbeliever. So if that simple answer is what explains what an unbeliever is, then let me ask you that question. How pleasing is that relationship to God? If there is one believer in that relationship and the other party is one who does not believe in Christ. When there is no mutuality on the main issue, which is the most important issue, which is Christ, I don't think there could be any spiritual harmony there. I don't think there could be any unity that you can be sharing together. I think if you try to make it work and if you see that there is any unity that is shared among you, I think really everything else that you look at as unity is really de deception. Um, if you say you share the same love, you share the same common goals or beliefs or whatever, but when it comes to Christ, I think the believer should realize that Christ is your life. Christ is everything to you. So if that you can't share with the partner, I think everything else is deception, right? And uh, we shouldn't fool ourselves to think that you can make it work knowing that the other side does not believe in Christ. How could you walk in spiritual harmony? And how could you walk pure in the eyes of the Lord without any hindrance? Because if you're giving your full devotion to someone who you find um, takes a great part of your life, 
and they don't believe in Christ, how can you possibly walk in Christ without hindrance? This can lead to becoming the believer's main problem um, in their walk with Christ, and which definitely is considered a sin in the eyes of the Lord. Um, if this relationship leads to marriage, this will be a disunited one. Eventually, uh, one party has to compromise. And most of the time, if the Christian is immature or if that Christian is just professing, they're the ones really that are going to compromise to the other side. Um, so I think all of these signs of unequally yoked relationships are signs of immaturity. I would advise that uh, before you enter into a relationship, that you ensure in yourself to be a mature believer in Christ and that you are completely ready to handle a God-given union. Because um, you don't mess around with relationships, especially when it comes to love, romance. This is a God-given gift, and you don't want to mess with that. Especially if you're a Christian, you don't want to get yourself into a binding relationship with someone who does not share the same important core value of a believer, and that's Christ. Um, now, on the other hand, for those of you who are in marriage, really, you're now bound under that law, right? I'm not going to advise you to get divorced and leave that person who's unbelieving. I think you have to bear the weight and the consequences of your bad decision, uh, your unwise decision. And since you're there, many of you might have kids. I would advise you to really pray to the Lord to open the heart of your spouse, but you're going to have to bear the weight of that. Now, divorce is obviously an option if you both really can't agree on this value, but it is now really up to you what you want to decide from that point. Um, I'm not saying divorce is the answer for an unequally yoked marriage. I know there is already transgression committed by being in a covenant with an unbeliever, but um, I would say you must follow your conviction on what you think is right for you to do based on what you see in your current marriage. Um, but you have to be wise in that scenario. I would ask that you would counsel yourself with elders, your pastor, and present to them your current scenario if you find yourself in this situation so that they could give you godly advice, sound advice, and not a, um, a hasty one out of emotion. So I hope that answers that. Now, going into the next question, um, how, how must we deal with a professing Christian who is in a relationship with an unbeliever? How are, how are we going to deal with people who profess to be saved, but yet they have a relationship with an unbeliever? Now, we have to consider strictly because of the disunity, and Paul considers this to be an unequal relationship. Every believer should consider a relationship with an unbeliever to be forbidden. And that's that's just that, okay? So let me, I'm, I'm talking in the context of people who are trying to get into one, okay? Not the one who's already bound in marriage. And again, that's why I said you have to point out yourself to advice, sound advice with the and diagnose the actual situation that you have in your marriage. But people who are still trying to get into relationship we have to consider that the scripture considers this something that is forbidden. Paul says, do not, okay? He says, don't be unequally yoked with someone who does not know Christ. Don't be in disunity. Don't be in an unequal relationship. 
this should be considered to be forbidden in the eyes of the believer. Now, the scenario changes if the unbelieving party comes to know Christ. The, the scenario is absolutely different, right? If the unbelieving side finds out who Jesus is and turns out to love Christ, in God's sovereignty, he does things in certain ways that we don't know. But we have to ensure that the person on the other side who is unbelieving if they ever do commit to Christ, that that is genuine and not acted upon just because they want to maintain the relationship that you currently have, right? So with that being said, there are as many Christians that we counsel today that are in relationship, and they said that, you know, I want to bring my girlfriend to the Lord. I want to bring my boyfriend to the Lord. You see, I think right there, there's a wrong motive, wrong intention. Although there is great desire there, ultimately it's a good act, of, of, of leading them, but I think it's a misplacement of your zeal, right? And I think it might even be a deceived one. Um, you don't have to be in a dating status. Um, you don't have to be in a relationship to lead one to Christ, right? So that's what I'm, my point is. Um, leading them to Christ does not require you being in a relationship with them, uh, like a dating relationship, which takes a toll on your spiritual uh, life as a believer. So for those of you who are in relationship with an unbeliever and you're maintaining the relationship, number one, because you love the person and you're trying to make them a Christian, well, we have to first consider the Bible considers that forbidden and you should cut off that relationship. And if in your good heart you intend to lead them to Christ, you can do that outside of the relationship, the dating status, if you would will. So, and who knows, if you both are prepared one day to enter relationship and God really willed that you both will be together, it will happen. But it will happen under the circumstances that that party would come to know Christ, right? Um, so God permits um, all Christians to be married or in a relationship with people who share the same uh, beliefs. Again, um, in regards to Christ. Um, now, that's why for us Christians, we are mandated to be prepared, to be ready, to be mature, so, don't, so we don't make hasty decisions like this. And often, who deals with this stuff? It's teenagers, teenagers, young adults who, um, who find themselves in these situations, and they're in relationships as fast as they can be, but yet they don't even know if they're really serious for those, that person. Um, and now they're starting to feel emotional attachments toward these people because they've already gotten themselves attached. Obviously, that's going to be the result. But you have to bear the consequences that you have gotten yourself into a forbidden situation that the Bible says is not approved in the sight of the Lord. Now, as a Christian who sees this happening, how must we deal with people who are in this scenario? First, we must diagnose whether the believer is lack of knowledge and needs clarity on this, on this situation, or if this individual is persistent, is a persistent one who knows the scripture yet insists on their own way. So there's two different people. There's one who's lack of knowledge, and there's one who is persistent, even in spite of knowing what the scripture is already warning them not to do. Now, if this is a lack of knowledge person, if this is a lack of knowledge believer, then we have to correct them in love and explain to them like we would with every other sin. We have to deal with this like every other sin. 
we have to pray that they would receive it with joy and act in obedience in removing themselves from an unequally yoked relationship, right? So we obviously have to act, discipline them, discuss that to them, bring it up to their intention. Maybe they don't know what they're doing. Maybe, and most of the time, this is immature Christians that just don't know the scripture. Bring it to their attention and pray that the best that they would remove themselves from, from such um, unequally yoked relationship. However, if this specific person is a resistant believer, now that is, <laughs> is pretty contradicting really, a resistant believer. Um, but just for the sake of understanding the differences, I would still recommend that you correct this person in love if you are someone who is facing the situation because it's in front of you and we're considered to be accountable for our brothers and sisters. If this person still resists after the fact that you have corrected them, I would consider bringing this to the attention of the elders for them to handle. Because really, if there is a person there that is living in, dis, in, in, in a relationship that is forbidden in Scripture, and they are continually living in sin after being corrected, well, we are, we are instructed to make sure that the church warns them and that they are brought to the attention that they are living in something what we call shameful. So if the issue continues in spite of the elders talking to them, um, well, the Bible tells us, consider this sinner, uh, consider this individual a lost one. Uh, remember the, in the church of Corinth when there was an individual committed adultery um, in a way that even pagans didn't practice that. Um, the Bible says, give him over to Satan, right? So um, Jesus would even say, the person who does not want to repent of his sin Consider him as a heathen. Um, so this is no different than an individual who's unrepentant. Uh, so we have to consider his, uh, his Christianity is very questionable if this person is still persisting when the scripture is already in front of them. Um, I think their Christianity is very questionable. Um, but remember that, that you don't obviously want to take things straight there. Um, above all things, you have to ensure to deal with these people in love, diagnose the situation well, understand it, um, yet you have to bring to their attention the strict consideration toward the scriptures. So I hope that makes sense of how you should deal with people who are in, an in a relationship that is unequally yoked. Um, because you care for your brothers and sisters, you have to look out for them and you have to warn them. It is your duty as a Christian to do that and to deal with it properly. Um, number six, this is the last question that I'll deal with today. Uh, what if the believing parent allows the unequally yoked relationship? So I'm assuming that, um, well, this is actually what it's saying, that th this family is saved and their child is in an unequally yoked relationship and the parents are tolerating uh, the situation. Now, obviously, if the believing parents allow the unequally yoked relationship, I would say and call it out that this is simply bad parenting. That is absolutely bad parenting. If you are a parent of your house and you have children and your children are in unequally yoked relationships and you're tolerating that, that is bad parenting. Absolutely. And that's no different than feeding your children with the wrong food, right? If you're not providing the right discipline to your child, you don't love your child. That's really what it says in Scripture. Um, he that spares the rod from his child 
really what it means is he that spares discipline from his child is one who doesn't love his child. So it's bad parenting if you don't discipline your child according to scripture. And also, if you're tolerating that situation, it seems to me that there is really a poor view of the authority of scripture in that home. The authority of scripture is not highly viewed in that home. That's why everyone can just do whatever they want. And they see that their kids are in love, so let them just do it. Um, that's bad parenting. And I think you are misplacing the authority of Scripture in your home. Um, all in all, I think that uh, their toleration, the parents' toleration leads them to be also partakers of the sin that their child is in. Why? Because they're allowing it to happen, they're tolerating it, and they're insisting their child to continue in it when they're not saying anything about it, right? If, you, if, if the parents are silent about the issue, they're no different than saying, hey, it's okay. And that's false. And I would say that the sin that their child is in, they're also partaking in it because of their toleration. Especially if, as a parent, the accountability really on the child is, uh, for the child is on them. So if they allow their child to continue in a wrong decision, the responsibility and accountability and the judgment is also laid upon them as well as parents if this is left uncorrected remember that my suggestion to the parents would be to uh, or my suggestion to this christian who knows of parents who are tolerating such situations my suggestion to you would be to speak to the parents to ensure that they discipline their children in love talk to the parents talk to the father and the mother say that your children are not living in a holy relationship and um, you as parents should take the initiative to correct your children. Otherwise, the judgment is really on you also. Uh, but at the same time, you want to make sure that you correct the children in love and in the proper and appropriate way of handling it. If there is still resistance from the parents' side, I would also bring this to the attention of the elders for them to handle. If they do not listen from that correction, uh, um, especially if they're not listening from the correction from brothers and sisters, I would say bring it to the pastors, let them know of the situation, um, and hoping that your pastors and elders know how to correct and um, are willing to change this. Otherwise, that's very scary to be a part of a church that has no discipline. Um, now, bad decisions can be results of lack of knowledge, yet on the other hand, can leave the actions of one who professes to be a Christian quite questionable. So there's two people here, people who are in, who are lack of knowledge, and there are people who profess, and you cannot re remove that from our attention, that it is quite questionable, um, the professing Christian and their actions. So um, you have to consider those things, and I hope that that has answered your questions regarding that specific scenario. And um, if you do need counseling, if you do need pastoral advice, I'm definitely available at any time, at any moment. Feel free to reach out to me through Captives of Truth platform, and um, we can definitely set up a meeting and uh, discuss even further. But of course, if you're under your pastor, um, feel free to bring it up to your pastor as well. I would recommend that so that you have a proper approach to how you should be dealing the situation at hand. So um, I have dealt with those questions that I believe um, were fitting for this particular episode. I know there were more questions that were added um, as of late. So um, keep on 
asking those questions, sending them my way, and uh, I will deal with your questions as best as I can uh, with each episode that we deal with. Um, God willing, whenever the next Q&A will be, I will tackle those remaining questions. But I hope that those specific questions that we dealt with today has brought clarity to your minds and hearts and has helped you as believers to approach the scripture and your believing um, life uh, to a proper path of righteousness and so that you can grow as believers. This is the whole intention of this podcast so that it could benefit you, supplement your Christianity, and if it's done that, then I have done my job. So I hope that you've been blessed through this episode. Feel free to reach out again, www.captivesoftruth.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Captives of Truth. And I hope to hear from you soon. God bless you. Have a blessed week.